This morning, we are going to talk about the subject as worship as obedience. Obedience is its almost a dirty four-letter word in my vocabulary, because I think in the church, we have really messed this word up. We've made it primary, and I think hopefully at the end of this sermon this morning, you will have heard me say, hopefully for the umpteenth time, if you've been here for any length of time, that obedience is not a primary responsibility of the Christian's heart. It is from the overflow of a heart given to God. Does that mean obedience is unimportant? Of course not. If there's no obedience in your life, something is amiss, but the issue is rooted deep inside you. It's not about adding obedience to you. And I think one of the most beautiful places that we can wrestle with this is in the very first psalm, Psalm chapter 1. So feel free to turn there. Uh, Psalm chapter 1, in many ways, almost feels like it could be in the book of Proverbs. Uh, And in some ways, it kind of sets the whole scene for the book of Psalms. So you're saying, well, why are we doing this in week number five instead of week number one? And the reason is because I think it speaks so clearly to this issue that we wanted to speak about today. Let me ask you a question before we start. Have you ever found yourself stuck between two choices? Not knowing which way to go, which option to select. And some of those choices are heavy, so let's dumb it down just a little bit. Have you ever found yourself wanting to go to a place and wondering which route was going to be the easiest route? Which route was going to be the fastest route? And if you know, if you're ever trying to head out of the Lehigh Valley from wherever you are, there's two main ways out of here, either to the east or the west, and they are 22 in the north and 78 in the south. And anytime I'm heading out of Bethlehem, I am always in a massive debate in my mind as to which way is the best way to go. Because if you've lived here and you're not kind of on the edges where you can get out easy, if you're right in the middle like, like I am, you know that neither of those choices is a good choice, right? <laughs> because if you go to 22, you find out that there's way more people flying out of Lehigh Valley Airport than really should, right? Because you get stuck at the airport road for hours upon hours at no matter what time of day. It makes zero sense to me. Either we have an extreme target addiction, or there's so many people flying out of Lehigh Valley Airport that Newark and Philadelphia should shut down. 22 is impossible. And then they're forever working on it. I've lived here for seven or eight years or something like that, and construction continues. One day we will see the new and wonderful Route 22, whatever that means, you know? But then you're like, well, I'll just get on 78. That's an interstate. So someone like me, fast, big, that's where I want to go. But there are trucks on 78, and they ruin everything. If you're a truck driver, I apologize. I really do. But trucks on 78, they ruin everything. Because there's these mountains, and the trucks, they get in the left lane, and then they, they can't make it up the mountain, and then they slow everything down. And my kids are car sick because we're almost home, and we're on these mountains. And it's the worst. I hate it. Have you ever found yourself like that? Or, since my parents live in Effort, I used to live in Reading, Lancaster County, you can get out of here either on 22 or 78, you're going to make that decision, and then, you guys are kind of grieving with me right now, right? You're feeling this with me, we're experiencing the one another's, right? Then you have to make the decision, are you going to go for Route 222 and travel through these weird towns like Maxitani, there's a town called Maxitani, right? And if you've ever experienced it, you wonder, why? Why? Why does this place exist? There's like 18 antique shops and that's it. You know? 
but it's a two-lane road at 35 miles an hour, and you better go slow right through that sucker. And then it opens up into two lanes, and it's wonderful for a while. And then it closes back into, or four lanes, and it closes back into two lanes, and there's traffic lights. And they have just now installed a circle, which is the worst road idea that human, humanity has ever come up with. Sorry, New Jersey. And it goes on. Or you can go all the way out 78 and go down 61 and go through these crazy towns there, and it's, none of it is good. And so you're wrestling with all of these things, or... When we go to visit Rachel's parents, we decide within the first five minutes of the drive, furiously listening to Philadelphia traffic, will we brave the Schuylkill Expressway and cross the bridges from Philadelphia into New Jersey, or will we journey down Route 31 into no man's land in the middle of New Jersey and encounter 18 million circles where aggressive drivers are claiming the road and passive drivers are sitting in front of me so I can't go, right? (laughs) So much of our going is filled with these choices that don't seem so good, and it makes me think of Robert Frost's poem, right? This is the only way that gets me to poetry, if it makes sense to you. He says, he comes in the wood to two divergent paths, and he says, the one less traveled is the one he took, and it was for all the better, and if I could ever find the one that was less traveled, I know that my life would be that much better. Well, Jesus says to some of his followers that wide is the gate and the path that leads to destruction. It is well-traveled. But narrow is the path that leads to life. It is not well-traveled. And Psalm 1, I think in some ways Jesus is picking up on that. Psalm 1 kind of lays out for us divergent paths. The path that the world seems to always want to take that leads to destruction And then the path of righteousness that seems so mundane and yet leads to the fullness of life. So let's read Psalm 1 together. This is what the psalmist writes. He says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted in streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the psalmist, in many ways, boils down life, and the meaning of life, and the journey of life, to two divergent paths. And really wants to ask the readers, which one will you take? Which one will define your life? And so on the one hand, he starts in the negative. He says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand amongst the sinners, sit with the mockers or the scoffers. What he's saying in some ways is the path of the wicked one, the path of wickedness, the path, and I say it in a tamer way, the path of self, The path of earth and this world 
is a path that is very externally focused. It's a path that is focused on the doing and the action and the going and the stuff. And so you have walking and standing and sitting and all of these. Even sitting is an an active word and so much of it is based on responding to the senses or our engagement with the world rather than on what we really believe is actually true. And then not only externally motivated in these ways, but then also somewhat progressive, right? And not progressive in like getting better, actually progressive in getting worse. And so these three verbs that are chosen, walk and stand and sit, actually show a progression of acceptance, if that makes sense. You're walking amongst something and hearing and responding, and then you're standing, you become stationary in that place, and then you sit In Semitic language, to sit is to belong there. And so it's why Jesus drew the ire of the Pharisees when he would sit with sinners, remember? Pharisees are like, do you belong to them? And the psalmist, what he's saying here is when we're not careful, when we start going down the wrong path, we walk, then we eventually stand, and ultimately we sit. So let's think about it in this way. And If you know me, you know this is not a negative example. I happen to love the city. But imagine being from a a smaller city like Bethlehem or suburbia or wherever it is you live. Sometimes we go to the city, right, to the big city to experience it. We go to New York City or we go to Philadelphia or wherever your preferred place is. It's like we walk there, you know, not literally walk there, but we're kind of there and experiencing it. And then for those who kind of really love it, then eventually maybe you stay there, you stand there, you experience it more and more and more. But if you were to actually move there and buy a house or rent an apartment and live there, then you sit there, you belong there. Does it make sense? And this is the progression, really, that the psalmist is showing about the way of the world, the way of self-pursuit, the way of... Wickedness is that it begins with sort of roaming around and then it standing and experiencing ultimately a, a rooting down. Externally focused, it's progressive. And then the third word I think the psalmist might use to summarize his writing here is that it's fleeting. Whatever fun or whatever pleasure or whatever sense of happiness that we might get from it is a passing reality. Psalmist says it's like chaff that is blown in the wind. Now, if you're anything like me, the word chaff means nothing to you, right? But chaff, you have to uh, think about it in the sense of threshing. That's happening on a threshing floor. This would happen sort of uh, in a place up on a hill where the wind could blow through. Uh, the, the wheat, the grain, they were threshed. They were stomped on so that the, the good stuff was separated from the chaff, which is kind of the waste and was tossed up into the air, and the good stuff would fall, and the wind would blow the lighter-weighing chaff away, so the good was separated from the bad. And he's saying the way of the wicked is like the chaff. It blows away. It's waste. And its presence is fleeting. And then maybe the last thing he would say about the way of the wicked is that it's unprotected. It's insecure. He said it leads to judgment. So God watches over the righteous, but not the wicked. And that is to to go your own way is actually to step out of the protective realm of God. 
I do not believe that God is out there zapping people with lightning because of their wrong choices. But I do believe when we walk our own way away from God, we do step out of his protective comfort and there's consequences for these things. It's why in the garden, when sin happens, they're no longer in the garden. They're no longer under the protective wings of God. This is the reality that's going on there. And then he turns and says, but the righteous man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree that is firmly planted where the stream flows. And he bears his fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. And so in many ways, he's holding these things up one against the other in complete contrast. Because whereas the way of the wicked, the way of self, the way of the world is a way that is externally motivated, that is externally engaged, actually the way of righteousness is not an external pursuit, it is actually an internal pursuit. Did you catch the two words that he uses here? The two verbs are not walk and stand and sit. They're not movement words. They are delight and meditate. They are internal words. So much so that I think we could say the way of righteousness, the way of obedience, the way of pleasing God in our lives, honoring God in our lives is a better word, is actually a matter of the heart and the mind, not of our external obedience. He says he will delight in the law of the Lord. The word delight is an affection word. You could be translated desire, something you long for or really want. It's a word of the heart. And the word meditate is a word of the mind. It literally means to mutter to yourself, right? The psalmist is describing the strange person who's always talking to themselves about this one thing. And in his mind, it is the law of the Lord. To constantly be going over it and wrestling with it and drawing ourselves back to it in our mind. The way of God is not an external movement way. It's an internal deepening way of the heart, desire, and the mind meditate. And then we ask ourselves, well then what is the law of the Lord? For many of us, the word law is an even dirtier word than obedience. Right? The law means to me, not something I want to follow, but something I want to break. You know? Here's what you need to understand. In the Old Testament, the word law is not what many in the church today have made of it. The law is actually an act of grace by God so that he can dwell with his people. It is not a list of rules that the Israelites would break and therefore be punished. And so when God speaks of the law, he's speaking about a gracious act of God whereby he can draw near to his creation. And what the psalmist wants you to hear this morning is not all the things you do wrong and therefore you do not delight in the law, but rather a heart that is fully given and a mind that is fully given to reflecting on the depth of God's love for you and grace towards you. Does that make sense? The law is not the things in the Old Testament that you have to do. It is... The reality of who God is that becomes the law of your life. It's not a list of rules. It is a rule of life. 
And when our heart is given to it and our mind is given to it, it begins to change us in profound ways. It is why when Joshua takes over leadership of the nation of Israel from Moses, for those of you who are familiar with this story, Moses dies off. He's led the Israelites out of Egypt, but he cannot enter the land. Joshua is the one who's going to lead the people into the land. And God famously says to Joshua, be strong and be courageous, all these bold leadership words. But then he says, listen, do not let this book of law depart from you, from your heart. Meditate. There are those two words, hard, meditate. On it day and night. Why? So you will be careful to do what is written in it. God does not lead with do the law. He leads with heart and mind because he knows when your heart is given and your mind is given, you will embody what is in your heart and your mind. Do you see it? Obedience is secondary. Necessary, yes. But as a fruit of a life given to God, not as proof. The way of God is the way of the heart and the mind, an internal rather than an external reality. And where, whereas in the place of the way of the wicked, it's a fleeting reality. In the place of God, in the way of righteousness, it is actually what the psalmist calls a fruitful reality. And fruitful is an interesting word here because really two things going on. In one sense, it's the fullness of life that you get to experience. The word that starts this whole psalm out is the word Hebrew word blessed. And it actually is a plural word. It almost means blessings upon blessings. And it's a word that's deeply rooted to happiness and joy. In other words, if you are really looking for a life that is full of joy and happiness, this is the way you take. It's what the psalmist is saying. The happy life, and that's what everyone kind of wants, right? The joyful life is God's way. But it is not just the full life for you. It's actually the full life of obedience for God. Because he says, it's a tree planted by the streams of water that bears fruit in season that the leaf does not wither. And let me say two things about this that are profoundly going on here. The first is, how many of you have been to a grocery store? Many of you, correct? How many of you have seen a tree at the grocery store shopping for produce? Have you seen a tree at the grocery store buying apples? Do apple trees buy apples? Do orange trees buy oranges? I don't even know what fruits grow on trees, so I'm stopping right there. I think those two are right, right? Let's hope so. Trees do not acquire fruit. They grow on them naturally. You notice that? And yet... Many of us have bought into a religious lie that says we must acquire obedience. And in so doing, we have not grown roots that tap into the stream that we are planted by. And the minerals of the Holy Spirit, who produces the fruit, Paul says in us, we don't do it ourselves, right? Apple trees don't think really hard and create a plan and boom, an apple pops out. Their roots are so saturated in the things that produce the fruit that the fruit comes. Friends, stop buying into the religious lie that you have to add obedience to your life. It's wrong. I'm not permitting you to say, Adam says I don't have to be obedient to what God wants for me. 
I'm saying to you, if you desire the life the psalmist is after here, the issue is that you would grow deep, not add obedience on the outside. That you would tap into the move of the Spirit in your life. That you would not quench the Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit can be evident in your life. That you would soak deeply in the Gospel so that the Gospel can profoundly change you from the inside out. And that obedience becomes a natural reality. Isn't it fascinating that in the way of the wicked it's progressively bad, right? They, they walk, and then they stand, and finally they sit. There's just one word here for the way of the righteous. They are planted. They are unmoved. And, and Psalm 1, I think, is speaking of an Edenic sort of reality, a Garden of Eden kind of opening chapters of Genesis reality. And he's saying the way of the righteous, that does not leave the presence of God. And instead grows deep in it. One, one last thing about fruit that I forgot to say. Do you find it fascinating that it says, and the psalmist says here, and he's clearly talking about the life given to God that produces fruit, the, the, the virtues and the realities of a God-honoring life. Do you find it fascinating that he says it produces fruit in season? Do you notice that? For those of you who are perfectionists out there, listen up. He says the tree produces fruit in season. That even in the way of righteousness, God is allowing for seasons of internal growth before there is external evidence. That even in the winter when the fruit is not produced, the roots are growing. Do you see it? And then lastly, whereas the way of the wicked was a way that is insecure, unprotected. The way of the righteous is a way that is protected fully by God because it is always in the presence of God. It says that God watches over this man or this woman. We experience the kind of security and fullness that we long to have in our lives. So in life, we are faced with an interesting decision. And two things are going on here, I think, if we read the Psalms, the Psalm the way, if you read it the way I'm reading it. There's this first reading, and there's this second reading. The first reading, I think, is the psalmist saying, you know, knock, knock, anyone home? Live the righteous way. Stop living the way of the world. There's, it's fleeting. It doesn't end anywhere. You, you don't produce the, the happiness that you long for. You don't have the security that, that you're after. You're not experiencing the life that you could experience. It's so obvious after reading this first chapter of Psalms that the way of God is the preferred way and the psalmist wants you to know that deeply. But I think the psalmist also wants you to experience a moment of insecurity. A moment of difficulty. I think he wants you to hear the word does not loud and clear. Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand amongst the sinners, who does not sit with the mockers or the scoffers, whichever version you're reading there. 
And he wants you to do a quick self-evaluation. And I think he's evaluating his own heart. I think he wants us to have that uh uh-oh moment of, this is what I actually do. I'm actually not the righteous person that God says is blessed and full. I actually live much more in this path of life over here where I'm trying to pursue my own pleasure, my own gain, the fleeting realities of this life. And I live over here sometimes on Sunday morning or sometimes other times when things are going well, but not very often. And there's this terrifying reality that we are out of the security of God, that we're living a fleeting life, that it's destruction that is ahead of us. It's a tough word to wrestle with, right? I think it's the very same reason why Jesus, as we mentioned earlier, said the famous words, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Now, many people have interpreted that, and I'm not going to be critical of it, but many people have interpreted that to say, so many people are going to hell because they're not following Jesus over here. There's only a couple of people who are really narrow is the path, those who follow Jesus. And there's some truth and reality to that, but I think what Jesus really means in his heart of heart, what he's really saying is, wide is the path humanity is on. Narrow is the path Jesus is on. It is Jesus that walks to life. He is not calling you on to a narrow path. He is proclaiming that you are on a wide path and you better find a way to be attached to the one who's on the narrow path. See, for me, the end of Psalm 1, whether the psalmist knew it or not, is not that you better find a way to be the righteous man that can be blessed, but that thank God That in his grace and mercy, and in the profound nature of his love for you, entered into the mess of humanity, and simultaneously walked in the counsel of the wicked, stood amongst the sinners, and sat amongst the mockers and the scoffers, but also delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. And in so doing, withstood all temptation so that he became the one man who could redeem all of humanity. And that in being the blessed man of Psalm 1, Jesus then, through the power of his resurrection, opens the gates wide and says, if anyone comes to me, he has access to the Father. If anyone comes to me, he is blessed. If anyone is attached to me, it is why, friends, in John chapter 15, Jesus is called the vine, the tree. The imagery for all of Israel is singled down into one man, Jesus. So much so that obedience is no longer, can you have a good enough scorecard of obedience to earn God's favor? But now, can you be attached to the natural blood flow of the one who is the personification of obedience himself?
Jesus Christ. And he says what in John 15? Cling to the vine. If anyone is attached to the vine, he produces fruit. There's some pruning, I get that. But the vine is the life from which the fruitful life of obedience comes. And so we go right back to the blessed life of Psalm chapter 1, which says, how do we grow? Do we apply words of obedience from Jesus? No. Obedience begins with worship. If you are not starting with worship, forget your path of obedience. It will go nowhere. Obedience starts with worship. It is an act of the heart and the mind. Where we meditate on the depths and reality of the gospel. That God would enter this mess of humanity. And would set it right. Would create a path of restoration for anyone who would come. No matter how bad the scorecard of the past is. And as you meditate on that. And literally mutter it to yourself minute by minute of every single day. Your heart's affection for the God who is the writer of this story grows exponentially. And what happens? You begin to live the life of fruitfulness. The life of obedience. Listen, I'm not the man that I was 10 years ago. I was far more selfish. For those of you who know me, that means I was a 10 out of 10 on selfishness, and now I'm a 9 out of 10, right? I was much more deceitful. I was much less compassionate. All of these different things. That was given to my way, my worldly way. Now, have I grown in these areas because I put together this radical plan of personal discipline? No. No. I've grown as I have applied the gospel to my life every single day in failure and in victory. And as my affection for God grows, my obedience to Him follows. Can I tell you something? It is profound the things you will do for someone who you love. You will do things that you would have never done. My dad, uh, <laughs> my dad's a stoic German guy like me, right? Not, not so much emotion. Um, He loves my mom, and therefore, (laughs) when my mom's dad was in his 90s and had all kinds of crazy medical realities and had to go to all of these doctors that were like, my mom didn't feel comfortable taking to him because it was her dad and it was a man, who was there? It was my dad, taking my 92-year-old grandfather to the urologist to have the catheter cleaned out, right? It is profound the things you will do because you love someone. Did he choose to do that in self-discipline? No, who's doing that? Come on. He loves my mom. And in the same way, we've been preached a lie for a long time about religion. We've preached that if you obey, you will love. And it is backwards. When you love, you will obey. Love produces obedience. Obedience does not grow affection. This morning, I'm pleading with you to understand that obedience begins with worship. 
And to not stop there, but then to also believe that obedience is sustained by worship. Not by a self-improvement plan. But by a heart and a mind that even deeper are tapping in to the reservoir of the gospel. That we are not becoming people who are trying to acquire obedience. Trying to acquire fruit trying to acquire Christian virtue, but who are seeing it bloom in our lives because we have given ourselves to the Spirit of God, who we'll find out again this summer, but I've said before, his primary job is to glorify Jesus in our hearts. Spirit of God, you know what he wants to do to you? Like not make you speak in tongues and all these other things that maybe could happen, but you know what he really wants to do for you? He wants you to know and believe the gospel. So he's telling it to you all the time and drawing you to it all the time and sometimes moving profoundly in your midst because you are stubborn. It's saying, go deeper. Stop trying to add out here. It's worship. Sustains obedience. It starts obedience and it sustains obedience. And then we get into a nifty little secret here. And that is that obedience is itself worship. Begins with worship, it's sustained by worship, and then it actually is itself worship. Because if we believe that it's the depths of the gospel and the love of God for us in his relentless, persuasive pursuit of us that changes our orientation from ourself to him, And if we believe that that it's that thing that that produces obedience in us, or or could I better say it, if we agree with Paul in Romans chapter 12, after spending 11 chapters saying, here's God's profound love for you. Here's the gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 very famously says, therefore, there is only one acceptable thing you can do. Give your life to God. Be obedient. Follow him. Allow him to rule and lead instead of you. If that is true, then there's no other conclusion than that worship, or that obedience itself is worship. And I think this is why in Ephesians chapter 2, again, after giving a profound and compelling statement of the gospel, it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works of yourself left to any man should boast. You were given to the ways of this land, but God interceded on your behalf. Profound truth of the gospel. Give your heart and give your mind to it. Grow deep in it and what comes out from it for you. Verse 10 of chapter 2. You have been created by Him for acts of worship. You are His handiwork, created to proclaim His glory to the whole world. I heard one commentator one time say, it's kind of like we are his trophies. We show in our lives his dramatic victory. I went to a high school that was not a prolific athletic high school. We had a trophy case. It did not have many things in it. We played Reading High in basketball twice a year. A Reading High has produced NBA players. The guy's going to be drafted in the lottery of the NBA draft again from Reading High. You go into Reading High, and there, right before you get into the gym, is this enormous trophy case. 
And what's the first thing you think as an opponent coming into that place? Whoa. And God says, your life, your life of obedience to this whole world, that's my handiwork. It announces my victory. It's like walking in to the Geigel complex in Reading High and saying, whoa. Your obedience is an act of worship. It does not earn you God's favor. It announces God's victory. This morning, I imagine that we fall into one of two camps. Either we've just kind of given ourselves to our own way, the way of the wicked, the way of the world, the way of self. Let's just be honest. Or we have tried to create this third strange amalgamation of a path that I'll call religion. Where we still kind of walk our own way, but we keep applying obedience to the outside so that externally things look right. And yet we never have the life that God seems to promise. This morning, to either of those camps, the call of the psalmist is loud and clear. True happiness, true joy, true blessedness. The bounty of life is found only in the way of the righteous. And God himself, through Jesus, has walked the path of righteousness. And so if you long for the fullness of life, stop pursuing your own things. Stop trying to add obedience externally and instead be planted in the garden of God by the stream which flows incessantly and grow your roots deep in the gospel and find in it everything you have longed for. I pray with you.